everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Adam Mendelson, who teaches at the University of Cape Town, here to talk about his new book, The Rag Race, How Jews Sowed Their Way to Success in America and the British Empire, published in 2015 by New York University Press. Adam, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Mm, Jason, thank you for inviting me on. Well, it's great to have you. Um, I should note you're calling from South Africa. Thank you. Um, So, Adam, the book begins with a sort of a question that I always get, which is, why have Jews been so economically successful in the United States? Um, So maybe you can tell us about some of the leading explanations, why you thought they were insufficient, and why you wrote the book in order to address the question. Mm, Thanks. Uh, Very good question. So... I've always been struck by by this by this phenomena, which which I think many of us are familiar with, of of outsized Jewish success or seemingly disproportionate Jewish success in a whole range of arenas. You know, whether it's in the law, this disproportionate, or this extraordinary number of Jews in the Supreme Court. You know, at the moment, three and maybe soon to be four Jews on the court. Um, you know, in in, in Hollywood, um, Wall Street, um, and in all sorts of very prominent areas. American life, we see you know, Jews extremely well represented I mean, for a population which makes up just you know, maybe 2% of the total population. This is clearly outsized success in a variety of ways. It's something which I've been interested in. As I said, it's, it clearly is a broader phenomenon at, at work here. And I began to wonder about you know, how have sociologists and historians actually explained this. And what I discovered is that um, there it is a subject which hasn't um, received as much attention as you'd expect for, for all sorts of reasons, which I think you know, are relatively predictable, that, that um, talking about success can be uncomfortable. There's a concern that it, it might raise uh, anti-Semitism, um, you know, all, all sorts of reasons why it hasn't been studied perhaps as much as it should have. But I discussed as well that right true success can be broken down, at least the existing literature on Jewish success, such as it is, can be broken down into a, a number of different categories. In its most crude form, there are those who argue that there is something almost genetic about Jewish success that's sort of in, in, in the blood or in the genes, uh, but, but which is really a relatively marginal line of argumentation. But more serious argumentation, I think the, the, the dominant um, mode of argument is that there's something special about Jewish culture, that, um, and, and this is quite a sort of a broad category of explanation, everything from an argument that you know, Jews have a high rate of literacy, that they send their children to university in high numbers, to uh, that sort of one line of argument, it's sort of an educational argument, to other sort of cultural arguments, suggestion that perhaps Jews have been programmed by their history of marginalization and exclusion to be, you know, uh, to, to think like outsiders, or even perhaps a, a sort of a variation of that argument, that Jews have been marginally, have been economically marginalized. And particularly in the Middle Ages, and that they that trained them to think in particular ways that other groups did not. Perhaps develop a sense of of transmittable uh, business acumen between generations. Um, Jews were more flexible, perhaps, and others. A whole range of arguments of this kind. In essence, as I said, sort of a broad, what I describe as sort of, of cultural arguments. I think those are the arguments which have really dominated um, in you know, thinking about it. And we see it, you know, reflected in, in popular literature as well, that, that, you know, the books like the Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother um, make this sort of argument that in essence, you know, there's something special about, about Jewish culture. And I thought, okay, there might be something to that. There might be 
a you know some sort of proclivities perhaps towards literacy towards education a uh, things of that kind and and perhaps some of these played a role within the immigrant generations we do know for example that Jews were uh, had higher rates of literacy than many other immigrant groups to America in the 19th and early 20th century. We also know that immigrants, for example, uh, um, also came from a culture where, yes, there was a, a greater ease with money and a greater ease with the market than, for example, peasants coming from southern Italy or elsewhere. But I thought, you know, those explanations are, are appealing, but, but let, let, let's interrogate them properly. And that's really the genesis of this book that I, I, I developed this uh, drawing on really the research of others, but developed this comparison with I, I thought about uh, immigrants, Jewish immigrants coming from the same place in, in this case, coming from you know, the same shtetls in Eastern Europe, and the same cities in Eastern Europe, making their way to America and England. And let's compare the trajectory of Jews in both societies, because these are the Jews with the same cultural baggage. Uh, therefore, they should perform in the same way. And yet what I discovered is they don't perform in the same way, at least in economic terms, in their host society. So my, the question I raised for me is that, OK, culture is not enough. There must be other explanations here that we need to think about. So it's really a, my book is a way to test, to present a really a theory, an alternative theory of, of Jewish economic success, one which is certainly does not discount cultural factors, but says, there are other things that work here, and, and basically what I, what I suggest are, are structural factors, or sort of historical and contingent factors, which, which must be accounted for to explain why Jews have done so well. Mm-hmm. So you can test uh, Jews against other immigrant, immigrant groups, and you can also test Jews in the U.S. and then in England and the Empire. So sort of two, two sort of um, you know, case studies or, or control groups. What, tell us about what happens sort of in the early 1880s and, and why your book is sort of a preamble to that story. Mm. So, so you're absolutely right. I and mean, I think that that's the, the, a very good description of it, that um, uh, most work on the clothing industry, the Jews in the clothing industry, really begins in the 1880s and deals with the Low East Side and might deal with, with other major centers in, in America, you know, Chicago, elsewhere, but, but doesn't really focus much attention on, on that prehistory, on everything which comes before um, the 1880s. And, and in essence, my, again, my, my argument here is that uh, to understand, A, the concentration of Jews in the clothing trade, and then also patterns of development within the clothing trade for Jews, we need to understand what, what, uh, how Jews have become involved in this business much earlier. And so, so in essence, I argue that in both places, both in America and in England, there are these older patterns of Jewish involvement in this business. And, and in particular, um, that these older patterns of involvement uh, create particular opportunities for the, the future immigrants. So in the case of America, there's a broad distribution network which has been created by an earlier generation of particularly Central European and German-speaking immigrants, um, and which plays to the advantage in a way of later Eastern European Jews. Um, so in other words, this is a structural factor at work. In the case in England, there, there certainly is a much earlier and, and potential Jewish involvement in the clothing business, but it, it presents, again, because of historical accident, a different set of pressures and opportunities for Eastern European Jews when they arrive. But in essence, my argument, again, to, to summarize it very simply, is that in America, the, because of, of all sorts of historical accidents, um, there are all sorts of opportunities for 
Eastern European Jews to get into the clothing trade in the 1880s, but crucially, there are also ways for them to get out of the business. And in, for Jews in England, there are also plenty of points of access to the business and Jews in both societies, both England and America. This will be by far the dominant immigrant occupation in both places. But so there, there are also plenty of ways in, but there are many fewer ways out because of historical reasons. So more Jews remain concentrated in the clothing trade in England for far longer with all sorts of long-term consequences, I argue, in, in England um, re, re, compared with America, where Jews get out more quickly. There, there are some interesting historical accidents, um, which I hope we'll talk about in, in a couple of minutes. Uh, you know, But just to keep in mind, nothing was preordained. Uh, it, it, it's not as if the uh, American clothing industry was set to surpass the British one, which I hope we'll get to. Um, but I want to ask you just basically, what is the rag trade? Um, maybe you can just tell us briefly about, you know, it's hard to imagine because now we just go to a store and or order online. What exactly was the clothing trade and how, how did it work? So the rag trade is, is different from, from how we think about it today. But today we, we think of, uh, of well, we, our experience is we go to a, a store, a clothing store, and there's a profusion of ready-made clothing available in multiple sizes, and, and um, it's relatively inexpensive, certainly affordable for, for most of us. And um, that's not what clothing is like for, for most people at the beginning of the 19th century, certainly for many people in London and New York during the, those sort of early decades of the century. Um, instead, clothing is expensive. There is some ready-made clothing available, uh, but much of it is, is rough and relatively crude. Um, and if you want decent uh, ready-made clothing, if you want decent clothing, it's going to be either um, tailored, uh, which is expensive, which is time-consuming, um, which which involves expert tailors, or alternatively, it's going to be bought second-hand from uh, a variety of, of stores and markets in either London um, or, or New York. And um, it's that business in particular, the second-hand trade that Jews in both cities have become very involved with. Um, uh, and um, it's a business which is, uh, as I said, far broader and uh, more popular than second-hand clothing is today because it, it fills this, this vital market position that most people can't afford um, new tailored clothing, so therefore the second-hand markets fill the gap. And Jews are involved in everything from the real underside of that business, so... so uh, re- really sort of marginal second-hand clothing, things which have been repaired multiple times and sort of stitched together um, to, to somewhat finer second-hand clothing. And they are involved in, in all levels of the business in, in other sense as well, but everything from collecting this, this clothing from, um, uh, from, from people who are trying to get rid of it or uh, trying to barter it um, to, to the distribution of it uh, to, to, to consumers, to the sale of it in markets, et cetera, et cetera. So, so Jews are, are very active in this, uh, in, in the second-hand trade in a variety of ways. There aren't pioneers, however, in the ready-made trade at all. In fact, the Jews are come late to the business of manufacturing ready-made clothing. And, um, and part of my book describes how, how this process unfolds, how they manage to move from a relatively unsavory occupation, a second-hand trading, um, to 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 dominating parts of the already made uh, trade. So, so chapter one of the book begins with sort of a panoramic view of London in 1843. What would we have seen if we were sort of standing there? Uh, and then chapter two looks at New York around the same time. 
and you've touched on this, there was uh, already a difference between the two cities um, at that point. But tell us what we need to know about the trade in New York and in London in the early 1840s. So um, in both cities, there's a vibrant market in in secondhand goods and and particularly in secondhand clothing because obviously everyone needs clothing. And there is often, actually in both places, plenty of secondhand clothing in circulation being collected and resold, repaired, etc. The market in London is much more sophisticated than that in in New York, that in part it's because of the scale of the British Empire, that clothing is, secondhand clothing has been collected in London and shipped off to places like Australia, Um, uh, but also because the this market has been in existence for much, much longer that the Jews are not the pioneers again of the second-hand clothing trade in England. Instead, they really take over elements of this trade from others who've been involved with it for, for, for centuries uh, beforehand. There's, a, there's an existing system in place, but one which is going to grow dramatically as the, the British Empire itself grows. Equally, the market in London is supplying not just the empire with second-hand clothing, but also supplying places like homes, shipping clothing to, to the Caribbean, to South America, and elsewhere. There's also a vibrant secondhand market in Chatham Street in New York and, and a variety of other uh, cities in, in, in America at the time, but nothing of the scale that we see in, in London, and, and for a whole variety of reasons. That, that uh, certainly there seems to be indication that there's less uh, clothing to, to go around, um, that and equally the there isn't yet elaborate mechanism for distributing clothing into you know, the American frontier or elsewhere. Jews are only involved in very much in, in those processes, um, in part because the market in New York is that much more limited. It means that there isn't as much of an ethnic home for for, for Jews seeking out opportunity in in in, uh, in New York. In other words, they they are um, um, in London. You can sort of spend your entire career involved in one or other dimension of the secondhand trade. In, in New York, there are, there are few opportunities, and therefore, for that and other reasons, many more um, um, Central European Jewish immigrants who make their way to America in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s are going to strike, strike their way out west, and they'll certainly be involved in distributing clothing and selling clothing uh, as, as peddlers, um, but it's a somewhat different occupation than we see particularly in, in London, for example. What happens in this sort of two decade, in the 1850s and then just right up until the 1860, um, there seems to be some changes in the dynamics. Uh, you talk about um, you know, technology changes, market changes, advertising changes. Tell, tell us what's going on in terms of the two cities competing. Certainly, I mean, these are, as you point out, these are key, key decades. And uh, we see um, some, some significant changes, uh, particularly in, in London, as um, uh, with, with the growth of Australia, in particular, sort of gold rush, gold rush in, in sort of the 1850s in Australia, that, which, which draws significant numbers of people um, uh, to migrate there, but also produces a, a boom for those who are able to, to sell goods, to export goods in particular, to, to, to this, you know, this thriving, thriving market. And we see a number of, of Jewish families who are involved in both the second-hand trade and are beginning to enter into the ready-made clothing trade as well, beginning to, to branch out and send relatives, for example, to open up stores or to ship clothing to, uh, to Australia. So there's almost a, there's a breakthrough 
of Jews in London into, into ready-made manufacturing and again um, um, certain amount of innovation, particularly in, in advertising and in, in producing what really are proto-department stores uh, um, for, 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 for customers in, in London in particular. So, so, so people who are you know, finding ways to, to, to mass manufacture clothing and, and sell it to, to customers who previously had bought a second-hand clothing. So there's, some, there's definitely major change afoot for, for Jews in, in, in London involved in the second-hand trade. Um, uh, and, and the same sort of thing going on, similar sort of things going on in terms of at least change in, in the United States, where in the 1850s, uh, there is, by, by this point in time, uh, Jews have, have um, settled in a number of small towns across the, the West and across the South, and, uh, but a very different process of, of moving upward in the clothing business that we see um, Jews struggle more to break into the front ranks of the clothing business in New York, but more success beginning to develop in places like Cincinnati in particular. Which, which is booming at this point in town. And, and there it's, it's uh, Jews are, are moving up in part because of this distribution network which has been established of by Jewish peddlers who've opened up stores in small towns across the West and in parts of the South. That they are a natural distribution system for this you know, incipient uh, class of, of Jewish clothing manufacturers. So Jews are beginning to break in in both places but it looks far less promising in a variety of ways for Jews in America. In America, the the older pioneers of the ready-made clothing business uh, are still dominant, and that Jews are, are very much secondary there. That it looks like uh, um, it's un- it looks unlikely that the Jews will will, will you know, play leading roles, except perhaps for a few exceptions within the clothing clothing business. Um, in England, by contrast. Um, Jews are, are there, there are a few more Jewish pioneers, as I said, of you know, uh, who are experimenting with advertising, exper- experimenting with these grand emporia in, in, the, in the East End of London and elsewhere. And uh, so, so it looks like Jews in England have, have are well ahead of those in, in the United States. Right. And then uh, one of the historical accidents that you talk about, uh, what happened in the 1860s that allows the, the Jews in the clothing trade in the United States to really take off? It's uh, certainly very much connected with, with the Civil War. And again, it's not in quite the way that, that we would imagine. Um, for, uh, for a variety of reasons, Jews, uh, Jewish business people in the 1850s in, in New York and Cincinnati haven't been able to muscle to the front of the most lucrative market for clothing in America at that time. And this is not the, what you might imagine. It's not the market in the Northeast. Instead, it's, it's the Southern market, which is very much made rich during the 1840s and 1850s by, by a, a spike in the price of cotton. It means that southern plantation owners and merchants and others have money to spend, and they, they, they spend a lot of this money importing clothing and other, and other luxury goods. But because Jews have, aren't at the forefront of the clothing trade, uh, because they're not the, the most fashionable producers of clothing, um, they, they are, they're, they're relatively unsuccessful in, in that market, certainly Many uh, better-known firms at that time, non-Jewish firms at the time, are really dominate the the southern trade. Instead, Jews are, are forced, uh, New York Jews and Cincinnati Jews are, are forced to look elsewhere for 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 markets, for new markets. And, and one of those markets, which is an extremely risky market at the time, 
is is out west, in particularly in San Francisco after the the, the gold rush, and we see that's where uh, Jews uh, begin to establish a, a, a beachhead and and ultimately establish sort of a firm footing um, in in this California market. It's a far more risky market than than, than in the South. There are in San Francisco there are multiple bankruptcies of of Jewish clothing firms and you know the Jewish clothiers who send you know, siblings or cousins or other to establish you know, branches of the family firm in, in San Francisco, the failure in many ways is more common than, than success. Um, but this accident, in a way, of being focused in San Francisco, focused in California and not in the South, um, turns out to be you know, an enormous stroke of good fortune when the Civil War starts because all those clothing firms, New York clothing firms, which have invested their fortunes and their futures in the southern trade and have you know, assumed for and, and for decades that this is where the, they'll make their largest profits, many of them suddenly discover that they, they not only have they lost their markets, but they've lost a huge amount of money as you know, their southern merchants, their southern you know, retailers and others refuse to pay their debts. So, so they are crippled by the at least the beginning of the Civil War when, when, when you know, the, the, the march of the war begins. Um, whereas uh, uh, those who invested in California, by contrast, these Jewish firms, by accident, that, that's where they, they, they've, they've sought their fortunes, they uh, do extremely well, that, uh, in part because of the, the, the relative uh, price of gold and other such things. Um, so they were very well positioned um, during these, these sort of, um, terrible months before the beginning of the war when, when there's an economic crisis in America. Um, California firms do much, much better than those, those in the South. So, so, again, it's just an accident of positioning um, works in the favor of these Jewish firms. It means that when the Civil War, when the, the enormous orders which are going to be placed by the Union Army start rolling through, it means that, that these Jewish firms are, are well positioned to take advantage of that. And, and likewise, through the war, it, it helps to, to have you know, access to, to, uh, to, to gold from, from California and things like this. So, so it's, again, it, it, it really it, it's a, uh, it, it, it flips the script in a way. Uh, the Civil War, and, and it, it means that uh, these Jewish firms go from being, you know, secondary within this business to to suddenly you know, being in the pound seats. Mm -hmm. Which sort of leads us to where we started, which is in the early 1880s, uh, we, we, we see the beginning of the flood of millions of Eastern European Jews. Um, although your story is not as simple as, you know, those immigrants were tailors in Eastern Europe, and so they came to the United States and they found a home, you know, in the clothing business. It's a little bit more uh, complicated than that. And I think maybe a key theme is, is entrepreneurialism. So maybe you can tell us how the story that we've just talked about sort of set the table for the 1880s. Mm, yeah, good, good question. So, um, and this is in fact one of these areas where we see this divergence between um, England and particularly London and, and America, particularly, uh, particularly New York. Um, so, so in the American case, uh, by the 1880s, um, Jews are, um, are very involved by this point in time in ready-made manufacturing of, of all sorts of, of types of clothing, particularly in New York, but in a, in a, in a number of other places as well. And, and crucially, they have created, they've done this um, through creating this distribution system that they have still Jews in small towns all over the, the, the West and elsewhere who act as, as retailers for, for, for Jewish manufacturers. Um, and um, 
and and there is a it's very much as I, I described a an entrepreneurial model, one where you know these uh, an earlier generation of, of peddlers set themselves up in business and and, and not not all prosper by any means, but but many have in in a big, becoming the you know linchpins of small towns, the, the traders who have access to credit and goods from from larger cities. Um, by contrast, in in England. Jews haven't been pushed ahead in quite the same sort of way. Instead, far more Jews remain involved in the second-hand clothing trade, uh, which um, far fewer have broken into to mass manufacturing of, of, of clothing. And there, there, there never was uh, anything of a distribution system outside of London of the scale that we see for Jews uh, in New York and Cincinnati. It's no, the Jews haven't become peddlers in, in England on the same scale as they have in, in the United States. And this means that when these uh, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of Eastern European Jewish immigrants begin to arrive in the 1880s and 1890s, um, they're going to be funneled into to the clothing trade, not because they necessarily have tailoring skills. In fact, as other historians have demonstrated, many of these immigrants, in fact, come very ill-prepared for work in a modern industrial economy. And so this is work which is relatively unskilled. This is work which is... Uh, um, which is poorly paid, which is unpleasant. It's not working necessarily. Want to want to um, a field of work you want to remain in for very long. Um, but Jews are going to this is going to become the dominant occupation for for you know uh, for, for hundreds of thousands of, of, of Jewish immigrants. Um, but in the case of the United States, um, there are avenues out of this trade, and in fact, it's impetus to to leave the trade behind. Um, and here we're entering into sort of a, a complicated additional uh, subject, which I can talk about in in, in a moment. In England, for a variety of reasons, part because there aren't obvious avenues out of the business, there's no, no prior entrepreneurial model to, to draw on, but for other reasons as well, um, Jews are going to remain in this business far longer. So, so in fact, much of my argument for Jewish success in the 20th century, um, it, it, or the comparative success of Jews in America relative to those of Jews in England, comes back to this question of um, what is the what um, opportunities are there for Jews outside of the clothing trade and how much impetus is there to leave the clothing trade behind? In essence, I argue that the Jews in, in New York and Chicago and elsewhere, you want to leave the clothing trade behind as quickly as you can, and many Jews do. In England, uh, where there are fewer entrepreneurial models and the clothing trade is more attractive for a variety of reasons, more Jews stay, and that's going to have repercussions over the long term. Well, Adam, we've taken up a lot of your time, so any parting thoughts you'd like to share, and uh, what are you working on next? Uh, so something completely different. Um, I'm working on a project about um, uh, a very odd encounter between um, uh, a group of um, missionaries uh, who are in northern Ethiopia in the 1860s to aiming to convert the, the Falasha, uh, encounter between them and uh, a, a Ethiopian emperor who's eager to take them to kidnap them, uh, which he ultimately does, um, and the uh, soldiers from India who are sent to rescue them, many of whom turn out to be, be Jewish as well. So it's a very strange meeting between uh, missionaries, uh, um, Falasha, and, and the uh, Indian Jewish soldiers who come to rescue them. So it's a very odd encounter, which I'll use to tell a broader story about, about this particular moment in time. That is different. Uh, that sounds like a great project. I, I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is The Rag Race, How Jews Sowed Their Way to Success in America and the British Empire, published in 2015 by New York University Press. 
The author's Adam Mendelson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.